all of us, right? We've experienced forgiveness, but sometimes the thing that God has taken away from us, we have this inclination to take it back on ourselves again. And today's going to be the last day you do that. Today, right now is the last time you do that because what God has forgiven, who are we to put it back on ourselves? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? If God said, as David wrote in the Psalm, we're, we're talking about David, okay, Old Testament king doing a New Testament thing. He wrote, oh, how happy is the one whose sin has freely been forgiven, whose innocence has been declared by the God of heaven. There is no greater freedom than to know that we could face our maker with absolutely nothing between us, with no cause for him to say, I saw what you did there. I know what you've been up to. And instead, look into the face of love and the face of mercy, the face of a God who's been eager, eager to reveal his mercy to everybody who's willing to look at him. Everybody's willing to look at him without that shame. I got to hide my eyes from you right now. That's how every parent, by the way, knows when the kids have been up to something. First thing you lose is eye contact, right? Fathers, when you got that guy that wants to date your daughter, big red flag if they won't look you in the eye because they're hiding something. Just saying. <laughs> when we can look God in the eye and know in those eyes there's been forgiveness. It's an amazing thing. It almost can make you thankful for the fall. Thankful that Adam and Eve did what they did in the garden. Almost, I say. I'm not thankful for it. I think, dang, it would really be nice to live in Eden. It would be really nice not to have to deal with all this junk that we have to deal with. But we would have never known that God's a redeemer except for that. We'd have never known really the way that we understand it now about the love of God. You know how you can take love for granted when you've always had it? But if you've experienced what it's like not to be loved, to be rejected and depressed and feel isolated and like an outcast, and then you experience love, oh man, you never stop thanking that lover for the rest of your life. This is what love feels like. This is what my heart was made for. It's just an absolutely astounding feeling. So we've received that kind of love from God. And now our responsibility is to show that kind of love because all of us, no, none of us experience God's love just sovereignly out of heaven all by ourselves. I know many of us have had moments with God where we've had encounters with the Lord. I've had them. Many of you have had them where you just know this is God wrapping his arms around me right now and it's undeniable and unforgettable. But for the overwhelming majority of the times we experience the love of God, it's been through the hand of one of the members of his body. It's been through a servant of the Lord who experienced it freely, freely received, and now freely gives. David was like a pioneer of that kind of love. We've seen as we've walked through David's life together, the many opportunities he had to take revenge on the one who was punishing him unjustly, on Saul. He twice escaped spears in his palace on one day and then came back again, had more spears thrown at him, ran for his life, twice in the wilderness had opportunity to put an end to his misery. God gave his enemy into his hands. He could have done with him whatever he wanted to do, what God revealed in David's heart, the man after God's own heart, or as we've been saying, the man who carried God's heart, what was in him to do? Show mercy. Let the, let the villain go free. You ever, you ever watch a movie with a really nasty bad guy in it when the story's well told so that you hate that bad guy? He's arrogant, he's puffed up, he's proud, he gets away with murder over and over again, literally, and you just can't wait for him to get it in the end, right? 
Don't look at me like that. I'm not the only one. All of you can't wait for that bad guy to get it. And you're cheering that good guy on. And if the good guy will let the bad guy go free at the end of the story, it frustrates. It's like, there's got to be a sequel. Part two, he's got to get revenge on the guy, right? Am I only, the only one in this who's staring at me again like that? Or is it because it's hot in here? We'll have an African service today. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> There's something about that. You guys, uh, my favorite movie still to this day is The Princess Bride. You ever see that, uh, right? It's, still my, it's just a genius movie. I love it all around. It's still my favorite movie. Nothing's ever going to dethrone it. I mean, there's a lot of great movies about heroes of the faith and all that. That's another category, though. This is my favorite movie. There's a moment in it when, you know, it's like the boy hearing a story his grandpa's telling him, and he interrupts the grandpa because it looks like the bad guy's going to get away. And, he, and the kid's like, he, he's going to get him, right? In the end, he's going to die at the end, right? And the grandpa's like, no, nobody dies in this story. Well, what do you mean? Come on, Grandpa, what kind of story is this? Of course the bad guy's got to get it in the end. And I'm going to tell you what that's from. We are made in the image and in the likeness of God, and God is just. Right? Our God is just. Our God doesn't let the guilty go unpunished in that, in that sense of who he is. God cares about injustice. God cares about those who harm the ones that he loves. And God has a justice system in heaven. But we're living in a day where now mercy has been revealed as triumphing over judgment. That the wrath of God's been poured out on a cross. And that now is the day that our message to the world is freely we've received, freely we've been forgiven. The throne room's open now. It's safe to go back into Eden. There's no cherubim going to cut your head off anymore when you try to go through the gates. The veil's been torn into, and the access to the God who is mercy. It's my favorite revelation of the tabernacle of old. Once you get through all the curtains and all the veils and all the thundering and all the, the fear of, man, people get killed by fire if they get too close to what's behind that last curtain in the most holy place. And the revelation of the whole thing is once you get to the heart of it and you get to the top of the Ark of the Covenant itself, what's it called? It's the mercy seat. He's always been wanting a people who are not only hungry after his mercy and desiring his mercy, willing to get over themselves enough to say, I sinned, I fell short, and I need that mercy. And those who are going to come out of that place and say, I can't wait to tell everybody about this. I can't wait to show everybody about this. And David was the Old Testament king who didn't have all of that. I don't know how David came to know God like he knew him, except that he worshiped and interacted with him. Because he didn't have any, the, the Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament covenant was a harsh set of rules. I mean, the guy was stoned to death for picking up sticks on Saturday. That's harsh. That law of Moses had so many opportunities. To sum it up, the soul that sins shall die. But somehow David, while living under that covenant, was able to tap into the mercy and grace of God in a way that very few Christians have even tapped into. Who lets their enemy, the villain of their life story, go free? Who, when finding out that the villain of their life story finally got the justice that was awaiting for him, tears his garments and weeps over the loss of that man. But a man like David. And it wasn't because David was somebody super special. Let's not make the mistake of making him into like the superhero of the faith, some unattainable, 
goal and, and man that had something that we don't have access to. Because as Lisa so well exhorted in that word she shared, we have that in us. Who lives on the inside of us? The mercy seat's right in here. If we will but tap into it. If we'll but make the choice to say, I have access to a forgiveness that is truly supernatural. So I want to put your heart at rest about something today as I share this word about forgiveness, that we are not expected to work it up in our own heart. Already, I know for some of us in this room, there have been wounds. I've heard some of them in your stories as we've sat together and taken counsel for healing before the Lord. I know that there's been outright abuse of every sort in so many of our lives. I'm not, and this is not to minimize the pain of that. What I'm saying is God's not saying, hey, you better forgive like I forgive or else. God's saying, I'm calling you up higher to forgive like I forgive, and I'm going to give you the grace to do it. I am going to carry the part that you can't carry. I'm going to do the part when you say, God, I just can't. I can't. I keep waking up. And ju- I desire justice. I desire to see that one go punished for what he did to me. And, and God's going to come in and say, well, would you like some help with that? Because I know how to forgive. The one who hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them. The one who had a legion of angels, he said, that he could have called to his aid instead of using the power that he had access to, used his authority to extend mercy. He said, here's the mercy seat hanging on a cross right in front of you. And I'm not going to be the one to bring judgment to you now. So here's David after all these years of wandering in the wilderness, running for his life, all the things that he endured during that season of his life. He finally has word that his enemy has been killed. So we're in 2 Samuel now. It came about that, that when David returned, there was a battle. Saul and Jonathan died. Saul actually killed himself. He did the Harry Carry thing, put his sword, ran it through his own self because he didn't want to be captured by the Philistines. And now he's dead. Jonathan was killed in that battle. All of Saul's sons were killed in this battle. And, and somebody came and brought David word that Saul had been killed and that Jonathan had been killed. And here was David's immediate from the heart response. It wasn't ding dong, the witch is dead. Which is what, come on, be real, most of us would have thought. Finally, I'm free. Finally, as David said and as we hope, God's going to get him one day for that. You ever, you ever forgive that way? <laughs> this is like the, the half-hearted forgiveness that we can do is, well, I forgive you because I know God's going to get you. <laughs> vengeance is mine, the Lord said, so God will get vengeance. And that's why I feel like I can forgive you. I want to urge you out of that mindset because here's what God does. <laughs> he goes and blesses that one instead of punishing him. Because you know what God's favorite thing to do about sin is, right? Yeah, pour out fire and destroy him. No, it didn't. His favorite response to sin is to show mercy. His favorite response to when we've blown it so deep that we can't even find a way back home is to put lights and, and arrows and a highway about a mile wide to show the way back home. That's his response to sin. And he's looking for a people in the earth who, like David, will respond as David did. David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. That's how the ancient peoples did when they, sh- they wanted to show the world 
right now, I am broken on the inside over the news I just got. And I want you all to join with me in mourning over this thing. So David tore his robes. And before David even had opportunity to tell the men what to do, these are those 600 men, mighty men in the midst. Remember them? They were this ragtag bunch of distressed, in-debt miscreants that spent a few years with David and were reshaped into a whole different kind of company of people because they'd been around a man who carried God's heart and who was after God's heart. So they also, all the men who were with David, they tore his robe, their robes too. They too should have been singing the song, ding dong, the witch is dead. Because wherever David went, if David was in danger, so were they. 3,000 elite soldiers from Israel hunting down 600 of David's men. They could have rejoiced in this day. Finally, we're free. We can go back to our homes and our families. We could go back to our ancient estate, our house. We could finally just go back to farming, which is all I ever wanted to do with my life. They could have said that, but instead, they'd so gotten caught up in this forgiveness thing that David embodied so well, and this honor for the Lord and for the Lord's anointed that David carried, that they too tore their robes, and they mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. They remember, they just a few days ago were doing this because they just lost their wives and children and all their stuff, and they wept so hard you just, I don't know if I made this point when we were looking at that story. Picture the most, I got to find another vocabulary word for badass because I can't get that word out of my head. There's got to be something more preacher friendly to say, but that's the only word I can think of that describes it. They were like that. These guys, you did not want to tangle with any of them. And all of them, it said, were crying so hard that they had no strength left. I love being around men who are strong. It's one of my favorite parts about moving to Pennsylvania. Manly men, they could hunt, they could kill something, cook it, and, and they could fish and catch stuff. It's just amazing what Pennsylvania men can do. And I love being around men as we have so many in this company who can also cry unashamedly. And, and part of it's like, I dare you to make fun of them because they got about 18 different styles of guns they could take you on with. <laughs> and they know how to load them and use them too. And so can their wives. So, you know, <laughs> this is a whole different, I've never lived among rednecks before. It's a fascinating new world for me. You gotta know, it's not like that in New York City. It's just very different in Boston from that. There's a fascinating thing. And that's these guys that are with David and so been transformed in their heart that they could still be strong they could still kill a thousand people with a spear in one day and yet weep until they got no strength left because their enemy just died. If that's not supernatural, I don't know what is. I've seen miracles of healing. I've seen people that have had cancer no longer have cancer. I've seen people healed of all kinds of stuff in my day, but still the greatest miracle of all, the most amazing thing to watch is the transformation of a heart from this hard, angry, I'm going to get back at that guy that done me wrong kind of spirit to a soft, easy heart to move, easy heart to follow after God, eager to extend mercy, especially where it's not deserved. How many of you know that takes another level of strength? There is a level of strength to say, I'm going to take the initiative to protect my family, to do whatever it takes to protect the things I love and those that I love. That does take a measure of courage but it takes another level of courage and strength to be able to let the guilty go free. 
you got to know who you are in Christ to do that. we got to come to another level of supernatural forgiveness to be able to say, I'm fine if that person never gets punished. That's why Jesus, of all the subjects, when Jesus talked about different things about what the kingdom was going to be like and what his disciples would be like um, once they got Holy Spirit, that's what, you know, when you read the Gospels, just make sure you tuck this kind of in there when you read through the Gospels. I say when you read through the Gospels. Right? Not if one day you get around to it. When you read through the Gospels, that Jesus was preaching things to his disciples, teaching them things that they weren't ready to do yet. Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. That's why, I mean, you read through things and you're like, how could they not know that he was going to die on the cross? He said it as plain and plain English, well, Greek or Hebrew, whatever he spoke to them. He said it in plain language to them and they still didn't get it. Why? They didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do. So we look and we read some things sometimes. We've got to be careful with this. There's not a single thing that Jesus ever commanded us to do that came before he gave us the grace to accomplish it. So there's nothing we read about in the scriptures. And I say that now because I'm going to share one of the things Jesus, I think the harshest of Jesus' parables was the parable of the unmerciful servant. I say that because, I mean, I know we talked about millstones. If you make a little one stumble, that was pretty harsh. That one, that's one of my favorites. Like, look, you cause one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, and you're going to wish the mafia got to you first. Because there's going to be a millstone around. You're going to wish you just had a millstone and got drowned in the bottom of, of the sea when I get through with you. I mean, that's, that's hard. But this one, he's talking to disciples in that parable, those who have been forgiven, even though they didn't deserve it of a lifetime of debt they could never repay, and they go out and refuse to extend that same mercy and forgiveness, worst case scenario, worst case scenario. And so at the end of the parable, he says to the unmerciful servant or to the the guards in his palace, he said, hand him over to the tormentors until he's paid in full. In other words, you, you got a choice here. You can go back and live under the old covenant where it's the soul that's in shall die, and you can punish people for what they've done to you. You could get back at your enemies. You can, you can live that way if you want to, but it's going to be reciprocal. You're now back in the land where there's no mercy. You're now back living in that land you came out of where, you know, you got this sowing and reaping thing in your life. Karma is how we call it today, which is not a good idea for Christians. But anyway, that's, that's off the topic. And you can live in that realm if you want, or you can move over to Graceland. Where you receive the grace of God, you give the grace of God. I thought of that before Chris Vallotton, by the way, just saying. <laughs> Somebody come up to me and say, oh, I heard that series too. From, I said, I preached that in 1994. I didn't even know who Chris Vallotton was. Anyway, so we could live in that land, but it means we receive, we give. We receive, we give. Or we could choose the land of the law of sin and death. And we have that option. One thing we got back when we got saved was our free will. We can choose which kingdom to live in. Well, we can't choose to live in both. Can't choose to live in both. They get so far apart that even a split's not going to enable you to, to keep a foot in both kingdoms. So when Jesus said, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Oh, if that doesn't up the ante a little bit. Forgive your brother from the heart. So I used to think when I started out in Christ, I used to think, well, I'm going to forgive you, meaning I'm not going to be the agent of punishment. And as I shared, because I know God's going to get you, I'm going to let you go free and you wait till God gets a hold of you. 
for what you just did because he saw that. And then I saw God show mercy and bless a couple of people I thought that about. I said, I better rethink this. But I'm going to be frustrated with God for the rest of my life because he really does make it rain on the just and the unjust. Sometimes he rains extra rain on the unjust field just to give us opportunity, not, not a test, not a test like, hey, you failed that test. Go to the tormentor now. God's not like that. Jesus is not like that. But a test to see how much have we had grabbed hold of the grace available to us. And I don't think there is a greater test of grace than, the, than when we're tested in forgiveness and unforgiveness. So forgiveness begins with an act of the will, right? We make a choice in it. Forgiveness always begins with a choice. An act of the will, a choice, which is what choice? To set somebody free from the justice that they deserve. That's what forgiveness is all about. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. One way the Lord's Prayer can be translated, right? And a debt means you sinned against me, so you owe me something now. I'm choosing to say you don't have to pay me back. And I'm not hoping that you're going to have to pay someone else back for it. I'm letting you go. I'm wiping your tab clean. You got a clean slate, and now you can go. And I'm not going to say later on, sometimes we forgive, and then five or ten years later we bring it back up again. Well, we didn't forgive. Forgiveness means you wipe that slate clean, and you don't have the right to write it back on again. Even in legal circles in the Western world, English uh, justice system, we have this term called double jeopardy. You can't, be punished, you can't be tried again for the same crime once you've been found innocent and you can go free. So that's a heavenly idea. Once forgiveness has been, genuine forgiveness has been extended, there's no bringing it back up again. That's now separated as far as east is from the west. It's buried in the sea where it's forgotten and it can't be brought up again unless those who have authority do so. I'll get to that in a few minutes. So forgiveness begins with a choice, but Jesus said, I want you to forgive from the heart. Unless you forgive from the heart. So <laughs> we've walked through and I've done this myself and you want, you're trying to forgive somebody and, and you know that God's put his finger on it. So I've just found something in you that's going to destroy you because you know unforgiveness is like poison, drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. You all know that. And, and so sometimes we say, oh, I forgive him. God's saying, I want you to forgive. Okay, I forgive him. <laughs> you know, it's like when, when we're raising our kids and we say sit down and they sit down, but they're like, it's like your body is sitting down, but you're standing up inside right now. And that is not what we're looking for here. <laughs> so it's a choice to set someone free from justice, but it's complete when our heart comes to a place of being completely at peace, that the offender may not face any consequences for his or actions. Forgiveness from the heart means not only am I not going to be God's dispenser of justice, but I sincerely from the heart hope that this doesn't come back to bite you. I sincerely hope, and, and how we can wrap it up is I hope you have such an encounter with God that he can show mercy to you and change you from the inside. Yes, even that one who abused, even that one who stole, even that one who completely slandered and destroyed your name. Yes, even that I hope that not only do I hope you don't get punished, but I hope God blesses you with salvation and that you come to have an encounter with a living God. When we can get to that place where we genuinely hope that God blesses them, that's when we've forgiven from the heart. Now, that is a process, isn't it? It's a process that begins by living as David did, and that's why we're taking the time to go through. How did David handle all those moments of offense? He wrote a song. He complained to God instead of all of his friends, 
and then he worshiped. He got to a place of remembering, okay, and when it comes down to it for eternity, this is going to be me and you. What matters in life, you know, a, a psalm was just ruminating in my spirit earlier. Whom have I in heaven besides you? And there's none upon the earth that I desire besides you, though my heart and my flesh fail. How many of you have ever had your heart and flesh fail in the effort to try to forgive somebody? Right? But though my heart and my flesh fail, God is the strength of my life, and he's my portion forever. So when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter what's going on horizontally when it comes to the issue of forgiveness, reconciliation, and rebuilding trust. It doesn't matter. It begins with me and God. If I can get my face back in God's face, and sometimes that takes getting in God's face about something, as we've seen. David had no problem pouring out his heart and sharing with God how, man, I hope you judge them. I hope they die. He said that. That's written in a psalm. It's not one we use in worship. <laughs> but he's like, man, I hope you get them good. What's he doing? He's pouring out his heart. He said, I got this junk in me. It's like that water in the pipe I shared about a couple of weeks ago. I got to pump some, I got to get to the living water on the inside. So first I got to pour out all this junk of hostility, hatred, and anger toward the Lord. And once I get past that, now I'm going to have living waters flowing, open up my lips, and what are my mouths going to show forth? Your praise. Now I'm going to get to a place where I use this mouth for its original intent, which is praise, which is praise toward God and praise toward those that are around me. I want my lips to glorify the Lord, not show the wrong spirit or to misrepresent God as a God who can't wait to take us out to the woodshed and give us what for, for what we did. So our extension of forgiveness and our rejection of judgment taps into, it's a continuation of Jesus' ministry. What Jesus did on that cross was the beginning of reopening the mercy seat. When we choose to take the grace available and say, I'm, I'm extending mercy rather than judgment, we are continuing Jesus' ministry. He said it, you know, everybody knows John 3.16, right? We all know it, we love it. People that don't know God know John 3.16 because they've seen it on our, you know, our, what do you call it, sandwich board signs. And God loved the world, right? How did he love the world? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know what it says next? This is, I think, John kind of putting in there. It's either Jesus saying it to Nicodemus or it's John giving a little bit of an explanation of why Jesus said this. Um, it, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Jesus himself, the only one who can judge righteously, the only one who knows the secrets, the motivations, the reason for everybody's actions. Even Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world. Jesus' mission from 30 AD when he began his ministry and all the way on through till his return through his body in the earth has been that the world might be saved through him. We're not here to judge the world. Jesus did not appoint us to remain in the earth so the world would remember how awful and sinful they are. Jesus left us in the earth so the world would know how merciful he is and how awesome it would be if everybody would just go through that rended veil and see what's on the other side and find mercy and find the original intent and original purpose for existing. But we've been given that authority now. We've been given all authority. Jesus rose from the dead and his last words before ascending into heaven when he gave his, what we call the great commission, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. He got all the authority back 
And we, as the embodiment of that authority, we're his body. It's not just a metaphor. We're the physical representation of Jesus in the earth. And so all authority is now invested in us. And so we go and make disciples of all nations. And here's how that authority works. And let's go back to the picture of a legal justice system when it comes to sin and punishment. The devil is referred to in Revelation as the accuser of the brethren. When it comes down to it, the only authority the devil has, which isn't really authority at all, is that of an accuser. So if you imagine yourself in a trial, the only role the devil has is the prosecutor. So he's sitting at the prosecutor's table. He's got a record of wrongs a mile long on every one of us. And he's there in the court like one of those prosecutors has already decided you're guilty and I'm going to prove it no matter what it takes. He's at that prosecutor's table making the case before the judge. The judge is going to decide guilt or innocence and then an executioner is going to carry out the sentence. So the devil is only the accuser. He has no authority in the earth to do anything unless he finds a willing judge, an executioner, enter the body of Christ. Enter the people who now carry all authority in heaven and on earth on behalf of the Lord in the earth. So if we use our mouth and we use our actions, we use whatever power we have to execute judgment on those who have wronged us, which kingdom are we now partnering with? The devil has no authority in anyone's life, certainly doesn't have any in our life, and he doesn't even have authority in the lives of those who have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ unless he finds a willing vessel and a son or daughter of God who's willing to take their authority that's been given by Holy Spirit in us, by Christ in us, and use it to bring judgment rather than an appeal to mercy. Does that make sense? I hope I articulated that well as the Lord delivered it to me because I was an absolute mess when I was looking at this and and realizing how much God has invested in the body of Christ. David, for his part, as you saw by him rending his garments, he rejected those roles. And because he rejected judge and executioner, he didn't listen to the voice of the accuser. He not only spared Saul's life while he was alive, but he spared his own heart from bringing that same judgment into his own kingdom. Judge not, Jesus said, lest you be judged, for by the same measure with which you judge, you yourself will be judged. So if we execute judgment out there for somebody, we can be sure that judgment's going to come back toward us in some kind of a way. That's when we step back over into this kingdom of the law of sin and death. We've been the judge now and the jury and the executioner. Well, we just stepped out into a kingdom where it's not safe. It is not safe in this country because every one of us is a wanted man in this country. Every one of us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But are we still living here? Are we still the same man or woman that we used to be? Nuh-uh. We stepped over into this kingdom. I was too far away from this kingdom. We stepped over into this kingdom where if anyone be in Christ, he's what? A new creation. I'm not the guy, I'm not the wanted man who lived in the land of sin and death. No, I'm a, I'm a justified son of God, a new creation in Christ. And so long as I stay in this kingdom and live out of this kingdom, I am completely safe. That arrest warrant And that judgment that's awaiting me, they can't touch me here. I'm in the place of refuge now, the city of refuge now. David rejected those roles himself. And so he opened up a seat of authority in the earth where mercy could triumph over judgment. Remember, we started this whole study because 
when, when the angel came and talked to Mary and Joseph, he said about Jesus, he will sit on the throne of his father, David. This is if there was ever a moment that Jesus established a throne in the earth. Now he has yet to be anointed king for the second and third times yet. He, he knows he's gonna be king. He was anointed the first time, but he doesn't have a throne yet. But if ever there was a moment where David said, I'm gonna create a space in this creation, the earth, the earth's the Lord and all the fullness of it, thereof, right? God owns everything in the earth. On the other hand, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. So we have this, this balance of both of those going on. God will not do something in the earth unless there is a man or a woman who opens a door for him in this earth. He has given it to us. That's why Jesus had to take on flesh and blood. A man in the earth, the last Adam, had to say here in the earth is a space. And now heaven will now be built. As Eden was in the beginning, a garden planted in the middle of the wilderness, which was the rest of the world. Now I've got a place for you. David established that. And it was like David said here, I'm making a seat for you. I don't know who you are yet, my offspring, my descendant. But when you come, I've got a place prepared for you. We love that scripture about when Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, I go and behold, I go and prepare a place for you. Well, how about if we say, hey, Jesus, I prepared a place for you here in my life by showing mercy. I prepared a place for you to come and live in my house by being forgiving rather than judgmental. I prepared a place for you and I want you to come and live in this place. That's what David did. So Jesus said to his disciples, when he gave them the Holy Spirit for the first time, this is still in John, hadn't ascended into heaven. This is 40 days or yeah, 47 days before the day of Pentecost. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. How did the Father send Jesus? Not to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. That's how he's sending us. We're all apostles in this sense of the word. We're all sent ones. That's what the word means. I'm not saying that we write the Bible and I'm not saying that all of us are called to the office of apostle, but we're all sent ones as the Father sent Jesus. I send you. And then he said that and he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. First time they're going to experience the Holy Spirit. He talked about it at the Last Supper and he told them, taught them a little bit. This is what it's going to be like. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have no idea what you're saying right now. Well, this is going to be their first experience of God now breathing in them as it was for the first Adam when God breathed into them the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. They're about to get fresh breath. And Jesus breathed on them as God did in the beginning. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. Very important language, and that's why I love this translation, NASB, because they get it right from the Greek. So here is Jesus' promise saying, if you forgive the sins of any, meaning you, you do what I've taught you to do, you apply the grace that I've given you to be able to let people go who don't deserve to be set free, apply that forgiveness, and you're going to tap into something that's already been decreed in heaven on their behalf. If you forgive, future tense, the sins of any, they have been forgiven them, past tense. Anything you do from this day onward, where you extend forgiveness, you're tapping back into the power of the cross on their behalf. You're serving as priest. You're serving as one who can extend mercy on behalf of those who've never visited the mercy seat. Is this too deep? I'll try to explain it a different way. Give me that blank look. 
if you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Not that Jesus said, hey, you can just walk up and down the street and say, you're forgiven, you're not, you're forgiven, you're not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you, this Holy Spirit in you now is going to give you access to what's being said at the throne, at the judgment seat. And now you have the power to say what the cross has been saying for us now, 2,000 years later. The cross has been saying, none shall perish, all will come to life. The cross has been saying, reconciled, be reconciled to God. Here it is, the doors open wild. Reconnect with heaven. You, we have authority with the word of our mouth of forgiveness to connect somebody with the mercy that happened on the cross when mercy first triumphed over judgment. Does that make sense? This is why forgiveness is so essential. We have authority that's been given to us to extend mercy that connects people to heaven. People forgive that don't know the Lord, right? I know some, some non-believers who are more forgiving than some Christians I know. It's not as though forgiveness, meaning letting somebody go and kind of letting this. Some people are just thick-skinned and they let it all wash over and, and they just, you know, they don't even take offense, much less need to forgive somebody. That's possible. What we have authority to do is connect somebody to what's accomplished on the cross and our mercy extended to somebody in forgiveness. Now they've been connected to the heart of God who also desires that they're forgiven desires to have them back in the house that's the power that's our gospel that's the good news that we're called to to go and preach so our forgiveness aligns us with heaven's judgment that the cross was sufficient to remove the sins of the whole world does everybody access that no not everybody accesses that there is still a judgment there is still a lake of fire there is still choice get on you could get on that ship which is destined to shipwreck or you could get on this ship is like the ark of old and we have everlasting life together we still have that choice what it means is that there is nothing unforgivable nothing there is nothing unforgivable i've said this many a time to people who become offended and we try to work through a conflict and and now it's it's usually the last words that if somebody's going to leave you know and, and just disconnect from me the last thing i'll say to them if they're in Christ, is what is there that the cross of jesus christ can't heal between us what is there that even if I did the things that you say I did, I, I'm repenting of it, I'm owning whatever I've done, I'm, I'm asking you to forgive. Is there really anything that the cross can't heal? Are you saying that when Jesus said it is finished, he was wrong on this one? He finished everything but this thing that, that we're holding on to here? The cross was sufficient. Our forgiving somebody, when they were, this is an opportunity when we forgive the unforgivable, it's an opportunity for us to demonstrate what God is really like. That is the gospel. I would propose to you that the gospel is never better demonstrated than when we're able to live a lifestyle of forgiveness. When we're able to live a lifestyle clean of the sins of others and we hold nothing against anybody. That's a forgiving lifestyle. That's the good news. So we've been delegated the authority to forgive or condemn sinners how we wield that authority i would propose that that's the difference between whether heaven invades a church whether heaven invades a city a region a nation how well we extend that forgiveness as david did of old he opened up a seat so that the son of god himself coming into the earth with all the great men and women who have ever lived all the leaders all the kings all the thrones he went to this little backwoods country called Israel which nobody else ever heard of. Do you know, they're, they're historians who even, they're not sure that there was an ancient Israel that came out of Egypt. They were that obscure. 
But God looking to and fro about the earth said, right there. Somebody prepared a place for me right there. His name is David. And I'm going to sit on that throne when I come into the earth. So here's a song that David wrote. I'm going to just read this to you and kind of wrap up here. And then we're going to have communion. David commemorated most every event of his life with a song, right? So in 2 Samuel, after this guy gave David word that, um, you know, Saul died, he made a mistake and lied about it. We're not going to cover that a whole lot. This, this guy said, I killed him. David said, well, you weren't afraid to touch the Lord's anointed? Do you know how many times I could have done that? Don't you understand that this is God's man in the earth? How could you? And then he said to one of the young men, kill him. He, the, David's first act, now he's actually king now, right? This is David's first act as king, is to destroy the one who claimed to have destroyed his enemy who was keeping him from the throne that God said he was going to sit on. That's another message. I didn't want to get into that today. So this guy's dead now. And they've da- then David, it says, chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. Now, I'm going to read this. I'll just read this whole thing and then wrap some things up. But hear it in the context. We've been 19 weeks now in David's life. You've seen the things that Saul has done to this man. He destroyed everything. David has nothing. He has not his family inheritance. His family's running for their lives. He is running for his life. Everything great that God had given him, Saul took it away with one swoop of his demonized hand. And after all of that and all of these years, from David's heart, here's the song that comes out. He taught them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. That's the name of this psalm. Behold, it's written in the book of Jashar. I would love to find that book someday. Wouldn't that be a great archaeological find? It probably would be another book of the Bible, but we'll be arguing about it till Jesus gets back, whether it's the right one. Anyway, here's the song. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? That's where that phrase comes from. We use that all the time. All the mighty have fallen. The first time that phrase was used in 1000 BC was when David got word that his adversary had just been killed and he sang a lament that started out, how have the mighty fallen? The mighty. Are you kidding me? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Those are both Philistine cities. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exalt. You know what we do in the body of Christ today? When the mighty fall, like when leaders of ministries fall. And we've had some catastrophic failures in leadership in the last, I don't know, all the years I've been in Christ. And whenever one of them falls, what's the first thing we do? We got 50 opinion pieces in every Christian publication about why they fell, what was wrong with them, and why they should never be back in ministry again. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And we show the world what we do is we, we eat our own dead. We will make sure that this name is shamed, like that name is mud for here and forevermore. I won't even say the names out loud because if there was ever an opportunity we had to demonstrate to the world what mercy can do, that would have been it. But instead, for some reason, the body of Christ feels the freedom to take those that God clearly had anointed. Clearly. The fruits of their ministry are fruits of the kingdom. People in Christ, like really in Christ, as a result of some of these ministries. And because the leader had a moral failure, now they're like the devil incarnate, name is mud, and we feel confident to do that. And what does the world say? What does the world say? There's no difference between them and us. They're all hypocrites. David said, 
don't, man, I hope we could stop the messengers. And, and they did it. I mean, in this case, Saul's body was taken and brought around to all the cities of the Philistines and his head was put in a temple. It was horrible what happened to that man. But we're not to be the agents of that. This ought to be our cry. Hey, we don't need to spread this news around. We need to pray for that brother, pray for that sister. We need to ask God to do a miracle of rec- reconciliation and restoration. I love those that have lent their authority to those who have fallen in recent days. I know people who have put their entire reputation and ministry on the line. Bill Johnson's one of them. To get beside a revival preacher who fell into adultery and put his, say, I'm going to put my reputation on the line and say, I love this brother. Yes, he sinned, but he doesn't deserve judgment. He doesn't deserve death for what he did. I'll put my reputation on the line for it. If there's anything less Christ-like than that, I don't know what there is. That's what it looks like. That's what forgiveness looks like. Now, mountains of Gilboa, let not do or rain be on you or fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of oil was not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Remember, Saul united the kingdom. Saul beat back the enemies of Israel. They had relative peace in his day. Not complete peace. David would finish what Saul started, but he did. He did an amazing work God used him to do. Israel was not a nation. It was a bunch of disbanded, separated tribes up until this point. It takes some kind of leadership to pull all that together in 1000 BC of all times and ages. So he did that. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were swift. You could almost understand David singing the song about his friend Jonathan, right? This song. You could see David being heartbroken. My friend Jonathan, my blood brother, we make covenant with each other. He was, man, his love was just unbelievable. I've never known a love like I had with him. You could, any of us could understand David singing this song over Jonathan, but this song over Saul? How many of you want to be like David when you grow up? I do. You could almost say, you could say, what would Jesus do? You almost say, what would David do? Almost. He's got issues. He still has issues. But in this regard, I've never, I can't find an example in the scriptures more Christ-like than this response to the death of his enemy. Daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in luxurious scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been pleasant in me. Your love was to me more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Now, for the cynic, this song can come across as he's being just unrealistic. He's just sunny side up, Pollyanna, overly optimistic. You know, he's an optimistic, I'm a realist kind of thing. And you could say, what's up, David? You're ignoring so much history here. Let's bring context to this. Let's balance this epitaph, if you will. And I want to tell you that God has no balance in his epitaph for his children. He just doesn't. Read Hebrews sometime and read how glowingly those heroes of faith are praised. And then go and read their biography in the book of Genesis or somewhere else. And you see, you know, Abraham never wavered in faith, it says in Romans 5. I can think of a few moments of wavering there. Hey, Sarah, tell them you're my sister because they'll kill me otherwise. 
And then he goes back a few years later, hey, can you do that again? It's taking a little long for the promise of God to come to pass. How about we have a kid with one of the servant girls? I know that was Sarah's idea, but Abraham did it. I would call that a waiver, but God doesn't. God does not write your life story and he doesn't write my life story with all, what, do you, what does God do with all the sin and all the junk in our lives? If he doesn't know how to put it in a sea of forgetfulness and wash it away like the tides clean the beach, if he doesn't know what it means to east from west and how far apart those are, you know how far apart those are, right? Infinitely apart. You keep going east off the globe and you keep going west off the globe and you'll find the outer reaches of all creation at some point. If God doesn't know how to do that, then none of us does. And he is like that. So his epitaphs, as we would describe them, are really unrealistic because all he remembers, the only thing that remains when it's all said and done is what we've done in Christ. That's it. That's all we get for eternity, what we've done in Christ. Every good thing that we've done, partnering with heaven in the earth. David knew that. So David's song wasn't fake. He wasn't unrealistic. He just learned from relating with God how to separate wheat from chaff. That's what we do to make bread, right? Have you ever, I've never made bread from scratch like that before, but I've read about it. I've seen, but I've seen, you know, you throw the thing up and the chaff blows away with the wind. That's a perfect picture of what God does with us. David learned how to do that. We have got to learn how to do that with people. We've got to learn how to see Christ in somebody even before they know Christ. We've got to be able, I love how Bill Vanderbush puts this in Ephesians 1. Verse three, it says, for he knew us, for before the foundations of the earth, he knew us. He chose us in Christ before the foundations of the earth. He said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So our question, when we look at somebody, especially someone who sins against us is, what did you know about them before you created them? I need to know that right now. I need to be able to see something beyond this chaff that's destroying my life, that's interfering with my walk with you and help me to now apprehend heaven on their behalf and see what the wheat is after all that chaff has been sifted out. David could lament the death of his enemy. Why? Because he'd been together with him in the presence of God. Remember way back when David was in the palace, what was his first job in the palace? They called him to come in to minister to Saul when he was having one of his mad fits because of this spirit that came. And, and David ministered to the Lord in his presence. And as David ministered to the Lord, as he'd been doing long since in the fields of Bethlehem, everybody knew he was a warrior. Everybody knew he was a poet and a singer. He'd, already, he'd been practicing that in obscurity. And then came his day when it was needed in the palace and his worship changed the atmosphere. How could David forgive Saul and maintain a posture like that? Because he'd been together in the presence of God with Saul. Even when Saul was terrorizing, even though couple of times that song got interrupted by a spear flying through the air. David had been before God. He'd been ministering to him. He'd been praying for him. And he'd been contending for God's heart for him in the context of God's presence. That's how we do this. That's how it's done. This is how supernatural forgiveness happens. This is how we become unoffendable, meaning People can sin against us, people can hurt us, but we're not gonna sin in our response to that. We're gonna apprehend righteousness and know what God's plan is for this. We contend, we pray, and we minister to that person. If they won't sit with us as Saul did 
as we're ministering to the Lord, then we can just imagine them in that place. We can say, God, I'm ministering to you right now because this is my safe space. That's a popular thing these days, right? We got safe space. Our safe space is everywhere we go because we are a walking temple. God's with us wherever we go. So we're in the presence of God. We're bringing this person with us in the spirit into that place. We're worshiping the Lord. And in that context, we're ministering. And then we know, how do we get to the place of forgiving from the heart? When we find authentic compassion for the one who wronged us. That's how we know from the heart means I'm no longer, I don't hate you. I don't hope something bad happens to you. Instead, God has turned my heart toward compassion. Most of the miracles of Jesus happen. It says he was moved with compassion. And so he ministered and extended the authority and the power that was given to him. He was moved with compassion. When we get to a place where we have genuine compassion, like our heart breaks for that, that abusive man, my heart breaks. What broke in you that made you able to do that to somebody? What, what got broken and demolished on the inside of your spirit that made you able to treat people like animals? You know, we can, we can look at somebody no matter what the sin is and say, okay, God, take me into the way you view this person. And as I sit in this place of mercy with you, now you're going to give me a plan on how to extend mercy and maybe even see reconciliation with God as a result of this. Truly what the enemy intended for evil, now being used for God's good and God's glory and for the good of that person. So I want to invite you into something here, and we're going to break bread together, but not as a group. I'm going to invite you, there are communion elements in the front and the back, and I'm going to invite you to have a time of communion with the Lord. Bring with you into your communion with the Lord somebody. You don't have, if there's a bunch that you're thinking of as I'm preaching today, just pick one. And then maybe if there are more, make this a practice. But sit together in that holy space of communion, remembering I found mercy in this place myself. I, the one who deserved to die, I, the one who didn't deserve your mercy, found mercy at this table of communion. When you invited me into a new covenant, when you said, I'm going to wash your sins away, though your sins be as scarlet, I'll wash them white as snow. And that blood that was shed on that cross enabled me to come into that place. First, Take your bread and, and your juice with thanksgiving that you're in that place. But then in the spirit, say, God, help me now to see that person in this place. Help me to grab hold of your desire that one day I might actually break bread with that person sitting across the table with me. In Christ, reconciled to God, now called my brother, now called my sister, or maybe it is a brother or sister, now reconciled to where I feel safe and confident to sit at a table with them and have authentic fellowship from the heart with them again. Um, so go ahead and do that. I'm not going to get back up and share anymore. Take your time with that. And then when you're finished, um, God bless you and have a great week in Jesus. The communion elements are in the front and back. And, um, and yeah, enjoy the Lord. Father, I pray that you will meet every one of us in this communion in a real way that brings life in a real way, may your anointing right now be on us to connect with you in a way that we can freely forgive as we've freely been forgiven and live a lifestyle of showing your mercy, how in your wrath you remembered mercy and how mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Mm -hmm.